In chapter 3 of the Apostle Peter's first letter, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If you're a Christian, has anyone ever challenged your faith? Were you ready with your defense? Were you confident? Or was it difficult? On today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God, let's look at some of the arguments people make against Christianity and how those arguments might be addressed. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, how often does it happen to you personally where you find yourself in a situation where you have to defend your Christian faith? It depends on what you mean by the word defend. Um, I, don't, I don't usually feel I, – I have lots of conversations about my faith with a lot of different people. Part of that is – Is that because is, you're a pastor? Part of that is because I'm a pastor, and so you know, it's, the topic kind of comes up when I talk to people. Part of it is because I'm a teacher, and I teach religion. And um, those conversations uh, come up as well. I, I don't. I have a hard time remembering times when I've had to defend when I when I've been on the defensive. Most most of them are just sort of organic conversations. I first of all, I don't ever like just talk to a stranger and just sort of like out of the blue say, "Hey, let me tell you about Christianity." The conversations I've had almost always, at least in retrospect, feel organic. Some of that's because I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, and so people will have questions. But um, I've never, I can't remember too many times when I felt defensive, like somebody's really upset with me or attacking me. Um, th those conversations, it seems to me, from my experience, this isn't like, and this is small sample size warning here. Um, those sorts of conversations happen more on social media than in real life. In real life, people tend to be respectful. In fact, I'll tell people, you know, if I teach a class, at a history of religions class at a local community college, I'll have, um, I'll have people in the class, uh, some people in there who are devout religious people, and then I'll have some people who are agnostics. I found in my experience that it's usually the more agnostic people who are nicer and more willing to engage in conversation. I don't know why that is. Again, small sample size, but I don't, I, I don't usually have to defend Christianity too much. So I'm thinking that it doesn't happen. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. It doesn't happen where somebody comes up and says to you something like, I'm going to exaggerate for effect here a little bit. Hey, you're a pastor. You should know the Bible well. I think that Bible is baloney. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're a fool for believing. <laughs> yeah, what do you say? That doesn't happen. No, not no. But does it happen where maybe you're on the golf course or you're having lunch with somebody and oh, you're oh, you're a pastor? Yeah, I'm a I'm a pastor at St. James Lutheran Church. Yeah, I I don't know the, the Bible. I just it doesn't make sense to me. I I don't I don't believe in the Bible. So it's not sort of like an active right. Uh, challenge. It's sort of a, a challenge in passing, which, if I were in that position, could probably be deflected and I could just move on past it. Or you can, at that moment, choose to engage. Does that happen to you? Yeah, th that's the way mo most of the conversations are, are about, you know, kind of around a, a specific topic. And um, somebody will say, 
well, you know, the Bible says this or that. And I'll say, oh, well, actually, yeah, there's some, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I study the Bible quite a bit and read a lot of scholars who talk about the Bible. And you'd be surprised that, you know, actually, you know, you said it says exit. Most people agree that it says Y instead, or, you know, or most people agree that Z is how the Bible came to be. And um, people say, oh, that's interesting. And it's usually conversations like that. I know hardly anybody's ever rude, but a lot of conversations that just sort of flow organically out of a certain situation. And you get a chance to say a few things and, don't turn it into a lecture or a sermon. I don't hardly ever do that, but get a chance to, you know, to use to use your word to, to defend Christianity when I get a chance. So I'm thinking our listener is saying to him or herself, well, sure, Aaron is a pastor. He's He probably can't avoid those kinds of conversations. If somebody is looking to have that conversation, they're going to they're gonna bring it up with you right. because you're a professional Christian, uh, air quotes. But... I'm guessing, and I have a smaller sample size than you have, that most people don't find themselves in this situation hardly ever. Yeah. Uh, We're certainly not looking to start some kind of conversation with somebody because we don't know how deep it might go and whether or not we can stay in it. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to talk about some things that people might say to challenge one's Christian faith today. And I'm wondering if... How many people do you think out of 10 are going to go, oh, yeah, I got to hear this because last time I got in one of those situations, I didn't do so well or I, I handled it this way. It's just so rare that I'm not sure that it's relevant. What do you think? Well, uh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm, what, what we should go after today is the rarity of it. Like, let, let's make it not rare. I mean, part of the – so for, on the Christian side, part of the problem is is that a lot of Christians think – Oh, that's pa- pastors should talk about that stuff. Pastors, you want me to start arguments? Is that what you're telling me? Well, I don't ever start arguments. I, I hope I don't, at least. But I, a lot of Christians are like, well, pastors, that's what they do, you know. And I, I, I think that Christians should talk about what they believe too. And and this, I'd say the same thing to to our agnostic listeners that I would encourage you to you know to probe, to ask questions, to ask challenging questions, like to say, hey, I don't, I, I doubt that what you're saying is true. Uh, and as nice as I, everybody should be as nice as possible, right? But but to not be like, well, it's religion. Let's keep it quiet. We don't we don't talk about that in public. I think you know, let's get it all out there in in the marketplace of ideas. And um, you, you know, agnostics aren't going to have all the answers to the questions, and Christians aren't going to have all the answers to the agnostic questions. And that's that shouldn't be. Uh, I, I I don't. I personally don't have. Uh, you know, I, I've I've practiced this. I've learned to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Let me. Let me think about it or check it out and I'll get back to you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing scary about saying, oh, I don't know. That's a good point. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. Let me think about it and I'll get back with you. You're a pastor and you don't have all the answers? You're being sarcastic, I hope. <laughs> I don't have hardly uh, any answers. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's say that you've encountered uh, someone and you've gotten into a religious conversation, uh-huh. however that happens, and you're... Uh, conversational partner says, look, we can't trust the Bible. Bible texts are Hebrew and Greek. They're translations of translations. After 2,000 years of copying and recopying the text, they can't be trustworthy. How do you respond? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, one, of the, that's one of the most familiar things I hear from people is the whole, you know, the telephone game theory. 
of how the Bible came to be is that, you know, you see, you know, you can go to Books a Million or, or Barnes and Noble or jump on Amazon and buy an English Bible. And well, okay, so it's in English, yeah, but it was translated from something that was translated from something that was trained. And sure, surely after hundreds and hundreds of translations going back to the beginning, I mean, sh- surely that uh, it's it can't possibly, it's, it's got to have been corrupted at some point along the line. And that's just, actually, that's just a complete misunderstanding of how ancient text, uh, not just the Bible, but all ancient texts get translated. The English Bible that you can go to the local bookstore and copy has not been translated from a previous English Bible, which has been translated from a Latin Bible, which has been translated from a Greek Bible. The translators of all the translations that we have now have uh, searched out and found the oldest possible Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and translated straight from there. It's just a one-to-one shot from the oldest manuscripts we have to the English Bibles. No, nobody would dare publish an English Bible that's been, uh, you know, an updated version of, you know, so so a lot of people are familiar with kind of the, the old King James version of the Bible with all the these and thous. None of our current English translations are just updated versions of that, where somebody looked at the these and thous Bible and said, I'll just switch some, these words to more modern language. All of our, whether it's the New International Version or the English Standard Version or, or any of these, New American Standard Bible, or New Revised Standard Version, they all go back to the oldest Greek and Hebrew manuscripts possible. And so that's just not how it works. And, and same thing, if you if you read you know Herodotus's histories or a copy of Suetonius's Lives of the Caesars or if you read uh, the Pali Canon, the, the ancient documents from Buddhism, um, they're all all of those translators and editors are looking for the absolute oldest text. The telephone game, it just doesn't happen. That's what kind is of the a telephone myth. game? Well, you know the telephone game where you sit around in a circle with a bunch of people. Uh, I, well, grownups don't do this, I don't think, but it was a kind of a popular game when I was a kid. This is back before video games, you know, when we just basically had to, you know, <laughs> Come cans, up with things like telephone Balls games. of string, yeah. yeah to play with. Uh, so you sit around in a circle and, and one person will turn to the person next to them and whisper a phrase. And then that person will whisper it to the next person. And that person will whisper it to the next person. And by the time it gets all the way around the circle, uh, the, the last person will say the phrase out loud. And then the first person will say the phrase that they originally said and everybody will laugh because they will inevitably be completely different. And the telephone game theory of scripture translation is, is that... Um, uh, you know, you have the original Bible, and then that got translated, and then that got translated, and that got translated like a, a junior high kid whispering it from one ear to the next. And so what we have today is can't be anywhere. It's, it would be laughably different than what the original Bible said, and so it can't be true. And this has gotten kicked around on, you know, 60 Minutes and even some um, – you, you know, even some college classes that I've heard of, this this sort of thing will be said – and it's just completely a myth. It's not the way scholars do their work. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think I've heard you say on occasion, not very often, but once in a while, as you're dealing with a text in a sermon, uh-huh. say something like, well, I know the New International Version says this, but I prefer the English Standard Version translation of this. So right, right there, we've admitted that we have two English translations, and one of them is at least in your opinion, superior to the other. Yeah. Aren't we already right there on our way to variety and difficulty? Anytime you translate anything, there's going to be variety. And uh, 
just depends on you know translators always make decisions this is the way languages work if you if you watch uh you know if you watch a japanese film and you, you got the uh if you don't speak japanese and you, you rely on the english subtitles godzilla yeah right yeah, yeah. um the, the 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 English subtitles will never match up word for word with the Japanese. This is hard for Americans to get because most of us only know one language. Um, that's not the way languages work. You just can't match it up word for word. Syntax is different. For instance, uh, Germ, German famously likes to put its verbs at the ends of end of sentences. You just can't do that in English. It doesn't make any sense. So if you translate from German to English, you've got to take the verb from the end of the German sentence and put it up near the front of the English sense, because that's the way English speakers work. Well, now you've just made a decision, and you've just tinkered with some stuff. And uh, does that mean that, well, you just can't know what any sentence in German means? No, of course not. Of course not. What it does mean, though, is that some German, some translations of German is be- are, are better than others. And so if you know German and you know English, you can look at the translation, and you can say, I kind of like this one a little bit better, even while acknowledging that both translations give you the meaning of the sentence. So take two Bible translations. Um, this is a little bit in the weeds here, but the, the NIV, the New International Version, it's very readable. It's easy to read. Um, uh, the English Standard Version is not as easy to read, but it's more literal. And so the translators of the English Standard Version have done uh, – a as best as possible, it's not completely possible, a literal translation. Is more literal more accurate? Uh, not necessarily, because more literal might not get at the absolute sense of it. I, so I can literally translate a bunch of German sentences into English by leaving the verb at the end of the sentence. Is that more accurate? Uh, well, there's a lot of factors there. There's word meaning, of course, is one of them. Syntax is one of them. Uh, connotation and denotation is one of these fancy words for words have dictionary meanings, but they also have flavors too. And so I, I was not prepared for this conversation, so I don't have any kind of examples in my head. Let me try and think up of one real quick. Um, so the word uh, this is oh this is this will take our listeners who are over the age of forty uh, back a few years. I remember maybe you remember too, Chuck, in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, when the Detroit Pistons. Uh, became known as uh, the bad boys. And for a lot of people, like for, for my mom, for instance, she would have been, why would they call them the bad boys? That's Why would you market yourself like that? Why would fans nickname them that? Well, in a sense, the word bad had become a positive thing. They were tough and they were physical and they won a lot of games because they were, were battlers. And so the word bad when you get to a translation and, you know, centuries from now when somebody's uh, um, translating the Detroit Free Press into whatever language is popular a millennia from now, and they get to that phrase, the bad boys, they've got a decision to make. Are they going to use the word bad from their language? Well, um, maybe, but then you have to explain they're not really bad. They're actually a very good basketball team. What that means, though, is that not that they were morally bad. That's not what it means either, but it's sort of bad, and the word bad could mean like physically tough. And so uh, that's just – I spent too long a time doing that explanation. When you translate from the Bible, you have the same issues. You have words that have uh, denotations as well, and you have to decide, how am I going to translate this? What that means is is that you can have two very, very accurate translations, but coming at it from two different angles – and so as a a pastor, as a scholar, you kind of look at both translations, and you ask yourself the question – which one emphasizes the thing that's 
that I think is super important in this text. And you're making those decisions all the time. It's a normal part of translation. It doesn't mean that the Bible's uh, inaccurate or not true or that we can't know what it said. It just means that since it was written in a foreign language, there are decisions to be made. Let's take a New Testament example. How are we supposed to have confidence in the Bible or the biblical account of Jesus when the accounts were written decades, decades after he lived? Surely, I'm being your, your opponent here, surely after the passing of time, the stories become more legend than fact. Well, um, that, that's, legends usually take a long time. They're either intentionally created. Legends usually take much longer to develop. C.S. Lewis famously in um, Surprised by Joy talks about this where he says something along the lines of, um, you know, hey, look, I'm a medieval, I'm a scholar of medieval English. Um, legends, fairy tales, that's my stock and trade. Mythology, I, I work in that all the time. When you read the New Testament, you are not reading mythology. And anybody who's ever read the New Testament can tell. I mean, there are certain mythological sort of features to it, but it reads as straight history, you know, uh, um, in the 13th year of Tiberius Caesar, these sorts of things. I mean, it does not read as myth and legend. And one of the things that, that we know about the Bible is that um, that it was written fairly close to um, to the the events that it describes. That uh, most scholars are fairly convinced that, for instance, the Gospel of Mark is written within twenty to thirty years. I mean, this is not just Christian scholars; ancient scholars are, are fairly convinced that the Gospel of Mark is written within twenty to thirty years of the life of Jesus. Thirty years. Yeah, that's actually you know. So when you write that down, so like you know, right now it feels like, uh, oh, wow, that's a long time in our conversation. But if you write something down 30 years after it happened, the chances of it uh, of it being uh, falsified, the chances of it being uh, legendary mythology are really slim. And I'll give you an example. 30 years ago, what's happening 30 years ago? Well, the fall of the Berlin Wall happened about 30 years ago. Now, if you if you wrote a book today, Chuck, saying that the fall of the Berlin Wall didn't really happen. Or if you wrote a book saying the Berlin Wall fell and both sides rushed at each other and there was a massive battle and Germany was destroyed and Poland took over the eastern half of what used to be Germany and France took over the western half. The problem that you'd run into with any of those, uh, any of those scenarios in this piece of fiction you've read is that there are lots of people who were there and saw it happen who are going to say, that's not true. That's not what happened. It takes longer for a legend to develop. If you want to start a legend about how the fall of the Berlin Wall didn't happen, you're probably going to have to wait a century before everybody's died out who was there. And um, you just don't have that case with the New Testament. They were written too close to the time, um, to, to the events for them to have turned into legend. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this as a Christian. I actually am a Christian. I'm saying this as, as um, somebody who's interested in ancient writings. That's just not the way legends work. I'd ask you whether or not you believe in the moon landing, but we have to move on here. That's before my time, so I'm more skeptical <laughs> about that, of course. Winston Churchill is quoted as saying, history is written by the victors. The phrase implies that when we write history, there could be bias, there could be prejudice. It may not be straight-up, factual, uh, unbiased writing. The argument is that the New Testament is untrustworthy because the Gospels and Epistles that made it into the canon were selected because the church picked the books 
picked the ones that said what they wanted them to say, and they subsequently rejected texts that said different things. So history is written by the victors. In this case, the church already decided what was valid, what wasn't valid, and that implies bias, does it? Uh, well, so a couple things. First of all, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, this is the Da Vinci Code theory of um, how we got this you scripture. You a title for everything. It's just very impressive, <laughs> I have to say. It's, yeah. We can put it in the Da Vinci category. Well, the Da Vinci Code, yeah, it's very popular. What was that 20 years ago now? Holy cow, I think. Yeah, that was about 20 years ago the Da Vinci Code was popular. Oh, we're getting old. That's <laughs> That feels like just Tell a few years ago. And, um, you know, in the Da Vinci Code, you know, Dan Brown, uh, you know, yeah, in, in interviews and everything, he said, oh, this was fiction. On the first page of the book, he writes, this is not fiction. It's a true story. It's an interesting way of writing fiction. Uh, but in there, you know, he describes uh, a lot of different things. He describes that one of them was uh, – there's this massive vote about which books are going to be in the Bible, and there's huge disagreement in the church. And the vote is super close, you know, like 170 to 160. I can't remember what he said. 170 said, of these ancient church authorities said, uh, no, the 27 books of the New Testament, that was it. 150 said, no, we need to let in all this. The Gospel of Thomas, we need to let it in. Well, the, hundred, the, 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 the slim majority wins and then proceeds to banish everything they voted against. That's that, you know, the, to the victor, uh, you know, the victor's right history, whatever the Churchill quote was. It's that theory. And um, when you go back to church history, actually what you find is that the vote for the New Testament canon at the Council of, uh, I believe it was Nicaea, um, was uh, more like 313 to 2. It was overwhelming. And the reason why is because the church was not voting you know, 200 to 300 years after Christ, even then the church is not never one time voted on what they thought should be in. There was a universal agreement of what should be in and what shouldn't be in. And already in around 150, 160 AD, so within 100 years of Jesus, um, already Irenaeus, the church father, is saying, well, we know which, we know which books should be in. It's the oldest ones. It's the ones that go back to the original time. You know, Mark, for instance, was an eyewitness of Jesus. Most people believe. Um, uh, well, that 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 should be let in. Uh, you know, that that's that that that's that's the standard. It's not. It was always like what's already in. Never like let's vote on what's in. And they always were going for the oldest. Which ones go back? So, First uh, Thessalonians, incredibly. Close. Go the book of Galatians too. You're talking uh, late 40s, early 50s AD. So within 15 to 20 years of Jesus, um, that's how you know which ones are in and which aren't. And when you find books that are older, the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, can't be any. We know for for, for scholars know it can't be any younger than 175 AD. Well, right there, that was one of the reasons why they eliminated it, regardless of what it had said. And it says some bizarre stuff, the Gospel of Thomas does. Um, they just knew it wasn't it. It wasn't old enough. That was always the standard. And, you know, so people will say, well, you know, how, how do you know those? How, how do you know it's so old? And the answer is, is we have a lot of old manuscripts of the New Testament. In fact, let, let me just uh, do a little discursus here. We have more old manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient document. And um, I, I pu pulled up some stats here real quick to to share on here. I don't, I do not have these off the top of my head. 
we have um, of Aristotle's works. Aristotle lived, uh, you know, several centuries before Jesus. We have one thousand manuscripts of Aristotle's works in the ancient from, from the ancient world. That's a lot. Um, the earliest one that we have though is from AD 850, about one thousand two hundred years after Aristotle wrote. So the earliest manuscripts that we can go back that we found not not that that are out that maybe there's some that are still out there, but just the way that writing materials decompose. Uh, the earliest ones we have are 1,200 years after Aristotle wrote. That's a huge gap. Same thing with Plato's works. We only, we only have 210 manuscripts of Plato. The reason why we have more of Aristotle is he was super popular uh, in the medieval period. Uh, we have 210 manuscripts from Plato's work. The earliest one, again, about 1,200 years after, is from right around AD 900. That's the earliest one. Herodotus's history, we only have 109 manuscripts of Herodotus's history. Uh, again, the earliest one is about 1,350 years after the original. Uh, Julius Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars. We have 251 ancient manuscripts of that, but the oldest one's around 1,000, 81,000. So what's that, about 1,000 years, 1,050 years after Caesar actually wrote that down. But when you come to the New Testament, we have 25,000 ancient manuscripts. We have 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. The earliest one that we have has been tentatively dated between 100 and 125 AD. That's the P52 manuscript. It's in the Manchester University Library over in England. It's a section of John chapter 18 and 19, which if you date, so this is a little bit too in the weeds. If you date John's um, gospel to around 90 AD, what we're talking about is a manuscript, a copy that's only 20 to 30 years old or possibly than uh, John's manuscript, 25,000 manuscripts as well. And so we have this massive, massive textual evidence uh, for the historicity of the text of the Bible. I'm not, you know, we're not talking about whether Jesus actually rose from the dead today, but what we're saying is that people were writing down that Jesus rose from the dead almost immediately after the event that it claims to describe. And so this is not a case of like, well, it's just ancient history and you can't go. We, we know more about Julius. We know more about Jesus than we do. We know more about the writings of the earliest Jesus community than we do about Julius Caesar's writings. But nobody I know of says, well, you can't believe Julius Caesar or you can't believe in Plato. I don't think he actually existed. All right. Herodotus, you know, you know, he's, he wasn't really a historian. Nobody does that. But we do it with the New Testament and uh, we shouldn't, whether you're a Christian or agnostic. The New Testament is a very, very reliable document. Let's go to the granddaddy of them all objections that you might hear while you're making a defense of your faith, and that is, now you know you can't trust the Bible because it's just full of contradictions. Yeah. There, there are people who play that card like it's the ace of Trump, and then mic drop, they're done. You're disqualified. Right. How do you respond to that? Well, I always, when people say that, I always kind of want to know you know which one, which which are you talking about? What are you talking about? And what do you find? Well, it's all over the board. A lot of people actually will just say, "Oh, I don't have any in mind right now." I just, you know, I, I know that I, I read an essay, and I remember the guy outlining some um, contradictions in the essay, and I don't remember which ones they are. You'll, you'll get a lot of that. I actually, my most recent one was um, a, a guy who said in this one section. Uh, it says in this one section in the Bible, and I think he was in the, I can't remember where he was at. He, was at, he said, it says that uh, God is a God of wrath. But then this other section over here, it says, oh, it says God is a God of love. 
And so it can't, which one is it? It can't possibly be both. Well, somebody says something like that, it's really easy to, to talk to them. And I think we actually talked about this recently. Well, that's not a contradiction. People can be loving and also full, also very angry at the same time. And are all the time. And are all the time. And in fact, those two things go together. Like if you love something, I remember we did talk about this recently. Yeah. If you love something, you will be angry if that thing that you love is damaged or hurt or somebody tries to take it away from you. And if you don't love it, you won't be angry if it's damaged. So love and anger go together. Contradictions like that. A lot of times people will say, well, if you pick up the gospel of Matthew and it says, Jesus says this right here. And then you look at the exact same story in Luke and he's not saying that same thing. He says something different. And I'll always say to them, well, that's not, that, that's just normal. Like, like if, if, if I have a conversation with you and then I leave and I go home and I tell my wife about my conversation with you, I probably am not going to say your exact same words verbatim. Does that mean I'm lying to my wife or that I'm contradicting you? No, that's not how, this is not the way we normally think of language and communication. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a modern Western, you know, journalistic objectivity notion that like, why I want to know exactly, I want there to be like a, a, you know, I want to see the CCTV of, of the event and get the exact same transcript. That's the way it should work. We should get like per- perfect clarity. And if it's not, then it's a contradiction. But that's, this, is, this is not even the way journalists work. And in fact, I saw this a couple of years ago and I thought it was kind of funny along these lines. And I've actually, this has been sitting in my phone for a long time now. Uh, and I've never shared it, but I'm going to share it with you guys today. Um, I was, this is actually, I, I can see here it's dated 2016. All right. So the Blues play. <laughs> that is a long time. Yeah, that is a long time ago. St. Louis Blues had a game. Uh, and I don't know if any, so, so hockey fans, uh, so we're in St. Louis. I'm a St. Louis Blues fan. Uh, there's a player that used to play for the Blues named Yuri Leterre. He's a French uh, player, played for the Blues, decent player. He must have scored a goal that night because on Twitter that night, there's these three quotes. They were back to back to back in my Twitter feed. The exact same quote of Yuri Leterre responding to the goal. Now, one of the quotes comes from the St. Louis Blues official team Twitter account. The next quote comes from Jeremy Rutherford, who at the time was on the Blues beat. He was the Blues beat reporter for the Post-Dispatch. And then the third report comes from KMOX Sports, which is a radio station in the St. Louis area, which I believe at the time aired Blues games. Exact same quote. Now, let me tell you what they each say. This is interesting to me. Uh, St. Louis Blues say this. This is Leterra on his goal. He said, I got the puck, I closed my eyes, and I shot. Just got to keep it simple. That's about it. Okay, keep that in mind. Jeremy Rutherford, the post-dispatch reporter, says this. Leterra said, I just got the puck and closed my eyes and shoot it. Which the, the, the grammar, so he left out the next part. That's not what I mentioned. Actually, the grammar is different. I got the puck, I closed my eyes, and I shot versus I just got the puck and closed my eyes and shoot it. See, there's an addition of a few words, yeah. subtraction of a few words. KMOX Sports, which aired the game, said this. Latera said, I got the puck and closed my eyes, shot it, and that was it. Just keep it simple, which is different than the Blues feed, which said, I just got the puck. I got the puck. I closed my eyes and I shot. Just got to keep it simple. That's about it. So you can see that they're all very similar, but they've all, they all have left stuff out and added words in. Now, and in journalism practice, when you put something in quotes, it's supposed to be exactly quote, what yes. the person said, not similar to what the person said. But none of them agree. Now, what are we going to do? Are we going to say, well, well, here's what some, here's what some people well, obviously do. Obviously, he didn't score the goal. That's right. <laughs> obviously, Yuri Leterra doesn't exist. Yeah. That would be the wrong thing to say. Actually, what happened is 
three different people heard the quote and wrote it down in ways that are correct and got the quote, but did not get the exact thing that came out of his mouth. And that's what's happening with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all recording eyewitness accounts of, for instance, Jesus's resurrection. Let's just go there. That's the big one. They are all different. And the reason why is because everybody saw it from a different perspective. This is actually evidence that Jesus's resurrection happened. If you read, and, and I've said this before in sermons, I might have might even said this in here. If a police investigator interviewed four different people about a robbery and they all four said the exact same thing, any good police detective would say they have got together and collaborated and are making this up. But if they get four different stories where some of the events maybe are switched and some of the words are different, what they know is, okay, these people saw the same thing, but from four different perspectives. That's actually an evidence that the event actually happened. And so when people say to me, oh, there's contradictions in the Christian gospels, a lot of times I'll think, and actually what you see as contradictions is just four different perspectives on the same event and remembering four different sets of words, but in essence, the same message. And what you're actually seeing is evidence that the events themselves actually happened and um, not really contradictions at all. So let me ask you one more question here. I'm going to assume that when you get into a dialogue like this, maybe with students where you teach or, mm-hmm. or folks here at, at our church, and you have more answers than they do. They have more questions than you do. And eventually it becomes apparent that even if they were to engage in some kind of disputational discussion with you, uh, they're not going to win because you're better equipped for that. So most of us say something like, look, I just don't know my Bible well enough to get into religious arguments. I leave that contentious stuff to my pastor. So I check out of First Peter 3 and uh, that make a defense stuff. Ah, that's your job. What do you say? Well, so first of all, contentious stuff, I don't ever get into contentious stuff. Because the the goal of contentious conversations is you want to talk about the virgin birth. It's con, it's it can be a contentious argument. It can be a very contentious argument. I refuse to participate in the contentious <laughs> argument. <laughs> well, that's a how do you win that argument? Uh, you don't win it. The point isn't to win. The point is to present truth. And then, as a Christian, it's not my responsibility to win an argument. It's my responsibility to say what's true, and then let Jesus take care of the rest. Let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. So I refuse to argue. And if somebody's angry, I'm just going to back away. I'm going to back away. I'm going to try to say whatever truth I can say in that conversation and then back away because I'm not – what I don't want to do, if, if I give any vibe at all – so first of all, I don't know all the answers. So if I want to win the argument, I'm not going to – I'm not going – because there's definitely gaps in my knowledge. And I have to be ready to say, you've made a really good point. I don't know how to respond to that. Do you mind giving me some time to think about it and get back to you? Um, I have to be willing to say that. Second thing is I can't go in trying to win because when I go in trying to win any argument, whether it's with somebody who's got questions about Christianity or whether it's with my wife over you know, who left the car door open last night, me or her, that any kind of conversations I go in trying to win the other person is immediately going to be on the defensive because they're going to smell. Going to make a defense. Yes, they're going to they're going to smell that I'm trying to control them, and I don't want to control people. I want the gospel to be about the Holy Spirit's power to rescue them, 
And so I don't ever try to get into contentious arguments. In fact, you know, uh, for when First Peter talks about giving a defense, he says to do it with all gentleness and respect. And so in all of, in all these conversations, I would encourage uh, especially Christians, but, but, but our agnostic listeners too, gentleness and respect. You're not going to win an argument. Nobody's ever looked at Twitter and changed their mind. Don't do that. Instead, present your thoughts. Christians, talk about Jesus. You talk about the things that we've talked about today. Say what's true. Love the person for themselves, not as a prospect for Christianity, but love them for their own sake. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes and then gently step back and let him do the work. Okay, dear listener, remember what Peter wrote, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Thanks for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God. We pray that these conversations are helpful and edifying for you. We'd love to hear your comments, criticisms, and questions. Email me personally at chuckrathert at stjamesglencarbon.org. Let me know what you think. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rather.